This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening into the podcast today. Today is going to be part two of our conversation with Tom Givens. Tom Givens is a nationally recognized firearms instructor with a... Uh, long and storied career. Tom is the founder of the Rangemaster Institute. He is a veteran of law enforcement. He served as a sheriff's deputy many decades ago. He spent eight years in the Army National Guard. He's an FBI police firearms instructor, or he's a graduate of the FBI police firearms instructor school. Also completed NRA law enforcement firearms instructor school. He is a champion competitive shooter, and most notably for our conversation today, uh, for years he ran a bricks and mortar range in Tennessee where he instructed more than 45,000 people who were pursuing their concealed carry permits in the States. And during that long time that he operated that range, he would get reports back from uh, students who had had armed encounters with attackers, and he's going to share some of the insights that he's gleaned from that experience with us today. He currently doesn't have that range. He shut that down in favor of becoming a traveling instructor. He and his wife travel more than 30 weeks out of the year to bring their knowledge and experience and expertise to folks all over the country. Today, our conversation will be joined with Don West, as always, and Steve Moses, who was kind enough to introduce Don and I to Tom. We're going to continue our conversation. We're going to talk a little bit about defensive display. We're going to talk about the perils of warning shots. going to have a little conversation about hardware. Talk about red dots versus iron sights and then the importance of visualization for any concealed carrier to imagine the circumstances that they might find themselves in. So we'll get right into it and start off with some great questions from Don West. Thanks again for listening. If you want to find out more about Tom, go to rangemaster.com. That's rangemaster.com. We deal a lot in the cases that we talk about and just general information when we're trying to analyze a case. We see a lot of brandishing cases. Uh, they, they were intended to be lawful defensive display, but they turned out to be charged with brandishing as there may be a fairly, uh, fairly hard line to identify on that. And I'm curious of your views on defensive display. Is it ever a good decision? And uh, how do you know when and when not to draw that firearm if you don't immediately intend to shoot it? I think the brandishing in many instances comes from premature display of the firearm, uh, where it's not really a deadly force incident and you make it one by drawing a gun. Um, Certainly there are many, many, many circumstances in which drawing to a hard ready and issuing a challenge is the appropriate response. Um, 
you'll you'll draw your gun in the real world uh, many times for every time you actually fired a human being uh, if you're conducting yourself properly. I, I found early on uh, drawing a, a big gun to a hard ready in a war face will keep you from having to shoot a lot of people. Uh, mm -hmm. They turn me a tempo. Well, I, I picked the wrong one and uh, and go away. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of bad guys out here <clears throat> don't really want anything but a good look at your pistol once they've had that they're happy and leave. But uh, I think the problem comes from prematurely. You, you, you're in a verbal altercation with somebody and you pull a gun to make a point. That's brandishing. Yeah, and and I suppose that especially if you pull it too soon, the other person immediately feels threatened. Absolutely. So Absolutely. they have to respond. Either they're going to run off, which is what your goal probably was to start with, or feel the need to immediately face force. You've people. just justified their shooting of you at right. that point. You've given them a standard ground defense. Mm -hmm. So that's really, really delicate stuff. It's a hard decision to make. And is it just as hard uh, to, to identify and articulate? You really can't set a clear standard. You just have to have enough training and experience and visualization to know it when you see it. Imagine how thick a book would have to be to list every possible scenario. As if, it do, if they do this, do that. If they do this, do that. If they do this, do that. It's just simply not possible. You have, mm -hmm. to lay, you have to lay groundwork, basically principles to operate by. I can give you countless examples of why drawing to a ready would work. But let's say I've got a guy with an edge weapon or an impact weapon, but he's 35 feet away across the parking lot. He says he's going to come over and cut me or thump me. I can't wait for him to actually do that nor do I want to shoot him at 30 or 35 feet. But what I would do is draw a, a ready and say, you need to drop that. You need to go away, whatever's appropriate at that particular moment. Um, if the guy lifts up his shirt and shows you a pistol, it says, give me your car keys, give me your wallet, whatever. What, what's the implication there? Or I will draw this gun and use it on you. I'm not going to shoot him at that point, but I would draw to the ready to preempt him being able to draw on me. Then if he goes through the pistol, I've already got mine in hand. I've got a good bit of the time-consuming part of it out of the way. I'm ready to respond at that point. So it, it gives me an option other than just drawing and shooting. So you've got a lot of opportunities in the real world to draw a gun to a ready and stop the situation from escalating to actual gunfire. And I tell students all the time, if we can get out of this without gunfire, it's a hell of a lot better than getting out of it with gunfire. And you know, the situations you're describing there, you have a, a potential attacker who has the ability and clearly the intent to do you harm, but the imminence isn't there yet. Right. And that's when a defensive display is appropriate when firing's not yet. Correct. Right? The guy that's got the gun in the waistband can't shoot me with it yet, but he obviously could take it out and shoot me with it in a very short period of time. The guy with a knife 30, 40 feet away would take a couple of seconds to get over here. And, and by the way, I'm not saying there's some magic number of feet. It depends on obstacles. You know, do I have a 25 year old athletic looking man on an open parking lot with nothing between us? Do I have a pudgy old man like me with a chain link fence between the two of us? That those things alter that uh, that distance a good bit. I'm just saying that there are plenty of circumstances in which I'm almost to the point of shooting someone, but not quite there. But I would want the gun in hand and ready to use it if I have to. And that's what drawing to the ready is about. That's not brandishing the gun. That's preparing to use the gun. That's a completely different issue. A lot of people are taught, don't draw your gun unless you're prepared to 
fire it unless you're justified in firing it. And I think for some folks, that means they fire even when the display has been effective at de-escalating. What's your take on that? The, the, the way you hear that that causes problems is don't draw your gun unless you're going to use it. That's stupid. Don't draw your gun unless you're mentally prepared to use it. It would make a lot more sense. And in the circumstances I described, I would, in fact, be mentally prepared to use it. That doesn't mean I have to use it. It means I have to be ready to use it. Hey, Sean, if I may insert something here, uh, going back to uh, defensive display, I think what gets a lot of people in trouble in terms of brandishing is a not having a full understanding of when use of force is justified. That is perhaps not all those elements are in play. And the second thing is being poorly trained, uh, not very good at gun handling and leaving themselves incapable of getting that handgun out and into action quickly. So if you take a concealed carrier that has trained and understands when he or she is justified in using deadly force against another person that has the skills to then get that handgun out into, as Tom said, maybe a hard ready very quickly, may find themselves in a position that even though they were justified in perhaps using that gun, they still had time to not shoot that person because they knew that they could get it into action quickly enough. Whole thing's about having options. And to clarify hard ready, that means the gun's out and it's pointed probably down. It's not, we're not talking about muzzling somebody at this point. Our, our default ready is both hands on the gun, trigger finger and register gun pointed to ground right out in front of us. You can snap it up to the eye target line in a fraction of a second but it's not pointed at anybody, your finger's not on the trigger, nobody's actually endangered it. Speaking of that, and this may be a, a real quick answer because uh, there's less ambiguity maybe, what about warning shots? You know, we see a lot of that too where maybe it's exactly because of what Steve said. Not well-trained people who almost panic or for somehow haven't thought it through enough to think what the consequences would be of firing a so-called warning shot? One, one of the biggest problems we face as instructors is cultural indoctrination. You know, by the time somebody's old enough to apply for a permit, they've seen tens of thousands, and that's not an exaggeration, tens of thousands of hours of television and movies. And that becomes ingrained in their mind as, as, as reality. And in movies, what do you do with guns? You draw them constantly, you point them at people constantly, you fire warning shots, you do all the goofy stuff we tell people not to do. But they've seen it literally thousands of times, and it's deeply ingrained. We have to really fight against that as trainers. Uh, you know, we, I'm adamantly against warning shots, so that bullet's got to go somewhere. Uh, you know, pistol bullet can, can travel as far as a mile in a typical urban environment. Yeah, another common misconception is that Shootings involve a bad guy and you in a sterile environment with nobody else around. That's that's kind of goofy. Uh, if there's nobody else around, why the hell's a bad guy there? Uh, they go to places where there are people, so they can find the victim. That bullet can go as far as a mile in an urban setting. A one-mile radius around, you've got 30,000 people in it. The bullet's got to go somewhere. Uh, and you're accountable for every one of them. Secondly, the pistol's only got so many in it, don't, don't waste any of them. And, and thirdly, what you're probably convincing this guy, because he's probably been around the block a few times, is that you don't have the balls to shoot him and you can take the gun away and feed it to you. 
<laughs> if you if you honestly have to fire the gun, it should be to put somebody on the ground. If you're not justified doing that, then don't fire the gun. Since you were talking about being accountable for each bullet that you fire and uh, a bullet can travel a mile, uh, I think that also means that uh, you have to be aware that drywall uh, doesn't necessarily stop a bullet, huh? You put your fist through drywall bullets to sail right through it. So, so part of what you've written about is is you take that into account when you're on uh, threat level orange and you're going up to threat level red. Part of part of that is positioning yourself where you can defend yourself, but also lower the threat to to bystanders. Yeah, if you shoot through a home invader and hit Timmy in the head, you're no better off than if the home invader shot Timmy. So you need to be aware of what's going on. Might have to change. You might have to move, change the angle a little bit. Uh, you got to be aware of what's around and beyond your own target. And that, you know, that that's a pet peeve of mine. People think the rule be a certain of your target or what's around it. It's a range rule somehow. It means keep up with which ones are the paper targets, which ones are the staff. We, we would like you to keep up with that. And <laughs> 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 having people who need to be shot and people who don't need to be shot and people who don't need to be shot vastly outnumber the people that do it, of course. Well, and let's not forget, though, when we're talking about uh, not just the real-world practical aspects of what happens when you fire a gun with the bullet and the danger that you pose to everyone uh, around you, including those on the other side of the wall. Uh, once you have pulled that trigger from a legal standpoint, you have now used deadly force. So the self-defense analysis, the justification of having the gun and displaying the gun versus having the gun and firing the gun is very, very different. And that gets you in trouble a lot quicker unless you can establish that, in fact, you were facing that deadly force threat, which meant you probably would have been better off shooting the person. And the same thing applies to shooting to wound, another old B-movie practice I wish people scrub out of their vocabulary. If, if somebody's honestly trying to kill you and you shoot him in the pinky toes, he's going to kill you. If somebody's not honestly trying to kill you and shoot him in the pinky toes, you're committing aggravated assault at, at least. And you're going to prison. <laughs> so either shoot to put people on the deck or don't shoot one or the other. Now, that reminds me, though, of something else I wanted to talk about that we haven't introduced yet into this conversation. I'm curious your thoughts on... Um, less lethal options. Uh, we hear that from other people saying they think that's very, very important. Others think the more training and experience you have with a handgun uh, and when to use it as, as important as how to use it, you don't really need um, OC spray or, or something like that. I'm just curious how you see this spectrum of force and playing in with less lethal options. I, I really don't see how being more skillful with a handgun has anything to do with somebody who's not a threat that rises to the level of using the handgun. But, uh, I think it's probably pretty important to have an option between a harsh word and a bullet. Uh, OC serves that function. What people do need to understand is OC does not serve the same function for a private citizen that does for a law enforcement officer. A law enforcement officer can actually use chemical agents to gain compliance. Uh, that's not what a civilian uses for. A civilian should be using it to break contact. Uh, mm -hmm. you go, back, go back to the concept of somebody who's a little bigger, a little younger, a little stronger, a little meaner looking than you, and you don't want to have a hand-to-hand -hand encounter with a the guy, then OC might give you an opportunity to disengage from this guy and get away from him. You would not be uh, 
voluntarily engaging in a fist fight with a guy. You're using the OC to prevent having a fist fight with a guy. And uh, there are certain people, extremely aggressive panhandlers, drunks. Uh, you know, one of the examples I hear used a lot is you, you're drunk and aggressive brother-in-law at Thanksgiving dinner. You, you really don't want to shoot him in front of family. If we can... <laughs> <laughs> Much as he might deserve it and you want to, you really, really yeah, can't do that. You might <laughs> something else and OC might allow you to uh, break contact we got not have to actually fight him in front of the kids and everybody um, tough call in that particular case but that's just an example of one uh, the, the aggressive panhandler you, you, you will not get out of your face uh, it will allow you to break contact with him and get away without doing any real physical harm to him and that's not a circumstance where a pistol is even remotely appropriate you said uh, something between harsh words and a firearm we talked to us a little bit, Tom, about your experience with teaching people how to use harsh words. Because my experience in the cases that we've explored, and and Steve, a lot of the instructors that you've brought to us to talk, will have a story about uh, somebody who's willing to pull the trigger multiple times, but a little embarrassed to say, "Don't shoot! I've got a gun!" or "Get the hell out of here." What's your experience with that, Tom? That's the same thing. Yeah, you know, we hopefully. The people that show up for, for a permanent type class or or training beyond that level, hopefully those are well socialized, acculturated, normal human beings. And well socialized, normal, acculturated human beings don't go around screaming at each other and and giving commands to strangers. And it's pretty it's 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 hard at first. People are very reluctant to to give commands to people uh, because they've been taught not to basically. But there are circumstances where it's appropriate, and and like I said, if if I can, uh, if I can tell somebody stop, and they stop, then that accomplishes my goal without having to do anything beyond that. And I'm I'm happy with that. Uh, but it it is hard. It, it, you'll find a lot of trench to take. It's it's very hard to get people to verbalize properly. The other issue though is is we got to limit the verbalization a great deal. Now, verbalization is a very high order mental activity. It ties up all the neurons and morons in your head, and you mm -hmm. don't elaborate sentences because in the middle of one and you need to act you'll try to finish the sentence first so we tell people to keep commands to two or three words at the absolute most one when we can make it you know stop drop it don't move go away those are commands that clearly articulate what i want but don't tie my head up for a long time it doesn't take me long to say stop doesn't take me long to say go away. And now that I'm not on the job anymore, that, that's my command is go away. What do I want them to do? I want them to go away. Yeah, Tom, I find you a, a very concise writer. Your whole book is filled of uh, short, powerful declaratory sentences. So <laughs> that's good advice. You, you also write though that about 80% of our communications nonverbal, and you talked earlier about put your war face on. Uh, would you tell for our listeners the story about the the potential robbery at the restaurant that you stopped with a stern look <laughs> that, that that's there are so many lessons in that one. Oh, little barbecue joint i used to go to and uh, most of the front is glass as uh, many of them are but there's one little section of the front of the store is brick and there's a booth just inside that section. So, of course, that's where I sit. So I don't have my back to the glass. I got my back to a brick wall. And that puts me facing toward the counter in a retail operation, whether it's a barbecue joint or a store or whatever, uh, action that would require 
gunfire is typically going to happen around the cash register. So by sitting where I was, that that meant anybody that came in the door had to go past me to go into the store. So I'm immediately behind them, and I can see the cash register. They'd have their back to me at the cash register. So this kind of the, the that, that's tactical barbecue eating. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and it's a uh, couple of little old ladies come in. I just glance up from my every time the door opens, I hear the door open. I just glance over, see who it is. It's a couple of little old ladies. I can back to what I'm doing. They go up to the counter and start ordering their food. Then I hear the door open again, and a young male comes in about 22, 23. And as he goes by me, uh, I look him over, and there's the outline of a pistol in his back pocket. He's been sitting in his car with a pistol in the back pocket of his jeans to the point where you can almost read the serial number of the pistol through the material. If it dresses like a thug, looks like a thug, walks like a thug, acts like a thug, pretty good chance it's a thug. So I'm, I'm watching the guy. I'm not going to shoot the guy for having a pistol in his pocket, but I'm watching him. So he goes up behind the uh, two little old ladies, and when the cash register opens for them to pay for their meal, he gets up on tiptoes and looks over their shoulder into the cash drawer. Well, a policeman would call that a clue. He's getting ready to rob the place. He's checking the till. So at that point, I empty my hands, and uh, he decides before he pulls that gun out of his back pocket, he's going to take a quick look around the store. He turned around, and when he looked at me, his eyes got wide. He literally ran out the door, jumped in his little car, pulled out onto a busy street, almost got run over by a truck, and just just went out of there in a, in a huge panic. I wrote the license plate down on a napkin, went up to the manager who I knew and said, hey, if that guy shows back up, here's his tag number, you should give that to the cops. And she said, what guy? And, and none of the staff were even aware that the place had just almost gotten off because uh, they're typical people who don't think in those terms, don't, don't expect that sort of thing. But so... Uh, what caused the guy to get wide eyed and run out of the place? When he, when he turned around and looked at me, he made eye contact with me. I smiled at him. And, and he, he thought, oh, oh Jesus. <laughs> yeah. 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 Really good. He, he considered that to be a clue, and, and off he went. Now, I never touched my pistol in the entire process. Uh, there was no need to. But that's a good example of A, having my head up, pay attention to what's going on. I'm out in the uncontrolled world with hazards about. So every time I heard the door, I simply looked, which doesn't cost me a thing. Uh, when the guy went by, I looked him over, which doesn't cost me a thing. Saw the pistol in his pocket, which allowed me to start thinking in terms of, okay, if he has a pistol in the pocket for some bad reason, I need to start thinking about what to do about that. And uh, by simply living in a mental condition where you got your head up and your eyes open, you avoided an awful lot of problems. Now, had I not been paying attention, and I had my head down, paying no attention to him when he looked around, and he had pulled that gun. Now I'm between the exit to the place and dude with a gun, um, which will be a lot harder problem to deal with. So that, that's a, just an example of how I like to handle these things. I handle them by not having to handle them. Yeah, that, that made me think of an experience that I had had. I have this tendency when I find myself in a place where I don't feel comfortable and I'm walking and I see somebody that gets me to code orange and I'm concerned about him, uh, I, I start visualizing what might happen and what I would want to do to him if he attacked me, which, and I, I intentionally get very graphic about it, like reach up and pull out his entrails or, or some really gross stuff. Right. But it, <laughs> what I realized is it makes me subconsciously make this face. So I'm, I'm doing this to this guy who's coming up to me and I'm looking for where can I get across the street so I don't have a pass by this guy. 
he must have seen my face because he decided to cross the street and get out of the way. But uh, I think what you're what you're touching there is awareness, demonstrating even non-verbally that you are aware, and and then demonstrating that you're not afraid to interact if you have to. Clint Smith said 30 years ago, if you look like food, you will be eaten. Oh, and, and an awful lot of people in the modern world are just bipedal cheeseburgers. Uh, you, you need to get your head out, open your eyes, look around. You know, if you, if you work in a patrol car for just a few days, you will hear over and over and over again from crime victims, geez, it all happened so fast, they materialized next to me, I never saw them. Uh, the truth is, no, he did not materialize next to you. He got out of that ragged ass old Buick over there, walked 30 feet over here with a pistol in his hand, and you didn't see him. He didn't materialize next to you. They don't beam down out of the mothership and attack you. They get out of ragged cars and walk over to you. And you should have seen that. Uh, if, if people would just get their head out and pay attention, they could avoid an awful, awful, awful lot of, a lot of things. Steve, is there anything that you're hoping that we'd talk to Tom about today? Uh, one thing that I think would just be interesting, Tom, is just, you know, maybe if you could briefly, you know, uh, talk about some commonalities that you may have observed amongst uh, all of the shootings in which the students that you have action, after action reports on. I always thought that was kind of fascinating. And uh, one of the things I think it tells people is that it's liable if you're in an engagement with someone in a transitional area it's probably going to be at a relatively short distance. Mm -hmm. And uh, what you don't have on your, on your side is gonna be a lot of time. So Tom, if you could just address that briefly, I'd appreciate it. Sure, yeah, in, in our culture, confrontational distances and conversational distances mean about the same thing. We, we talk to strangers in our culture about three paces. And that's where an awful, awful lot of this crap happens because to, Rob you, rape you, kidnap you, or carjack you. He's got to be close enough to talk to you. They're very rarely going to hail you across the parking lot. Hey, get your wallet out. They're, they're going to be close enough to talk to you. Uh, that is not always the case because of the exceptions of uh, targeted attacks and, and other crimes other than armed robbery. But if you look at all of ours, for instance, we've had two that involved actual physical contact. One of those was intentional physical contact. Hit, hit my guy with a sap. And the other was completely unintentional, accidental contact where they both came around the doorway and ran into each other. Um, and that's two out of almost 70 or over 70. Uh, we've had three that had to engage at 15, 17, and 22 yards. Those are exceptions. And those were unusual circumstances in all three cases. All the rest occurred in about a three to seven yard envelope with about 90% of those occurring in the three to five yard envelope because three to five paces is where we deal with these issues. Um, your typical American sedan is 16 feet long. That's five yards and a foot. So basically from uh, two or three steps to about the length of a car is where over 90% of our issues have happened. And, and I, that reflects what I've seen in 50 years of study of this, uh, both from law enforcement and, and the trainer perspective, the vast majority of this stuff is going to happen in that three to five yard area. Not all of it. Now, like I said, we've had 15, 17, and 22 yards. So you need to be able to engage at distance, but that's not the norm. The, the norm is inside the length of your car for the most part. And inside the length of your car, you're going to have a very compressed time frame. The other asshole could hit you from there. Um, if you just stand there and let him get off enough shots, you're going to collect some of them. So 
The idea is to move very quickly inside that three to five yard envelope with guaranteed anatomically valuable hits, not just somewhere on dude, but in that area bounded by collarbone to diaphragm inside the nipples somewhere. The ability to hit a bender plate right now out to about the length of the car is probably the most important skill that you could have. Of course, the first step in hitting them right now is presenting the gun quickly and efficiently, as you noted earlier. Uh, one of the deficiencies I see with an awful lot of people that carry guns, they've never given any thought to the idea of getting it out in a real hurry. Uh, presentation needs to be really polished because if you're not at home, the gun's going to be in the holster when you need it. You're, you're not going to wander around an American city with a gun in your hand for very long at all before somebody's going to want to talk to you about that. So it's going to start from a concealed presentation. So if you're not at home, we know that's going to be the case. Uh, you may or may not have to actually fire it. You may or may not have to fix it. You may or may not have to reload it, but you're damn sure going to have to draw it. So that's a critical skill I think people should put more time into. And the faster, more competently you can produce your weapon, the more you look competent, the less likely you are to actually have to fire it. And that's something you can practice with a unloaded weapon in a dry fire at your house, right? And, and I tell people, don't, don't ever miss an opportunity to get one more good rep of something. When you get ready to go out in the world in the morning, don't just pick up your pistol, stick it in the holster as you walk out the door. Go over and pick it up from wherever you store it, go to ready, and then holster it correctly. When you come in at the end of the day, go by wherever you keep it, draw it ready, and then put the gun down. Uh, that's that's a repetition of drawing the gun, a repetition of holstering the gun that you wouldn't have got otherwise. That's 730 repetitions a year you wouldn't have got otherwise. And that's enough to make it count, make it stick. Uh, and the other issue is recency trumps damn near everything else in training. If you presented your gun that very morning and you have to use it later in the day, what's your brain been reminded of? where your gun is, what kind of clothing you got on, what it would take to get it. So yeah, don't ever miss a chance to do something dry that, that's not going to cost you a thing, but might might help you later. We know we've spent most of the time talking about the software side of this and some of the training uh, to be more proficient uh, with operating the hardware, but we really haven't talked about hardware. And I know in your book you talk about it fairly extensively and you draw some general principles from it uh, that people obsess over having exactly the right gun, et cetera, et cetera. And you've sort of put that in great perspective from my point of view. How do you make those decisions and what's ultimately the most important in hardware selection? Well, obviously the, the pistol requires a bit of thought, but there's no, there's no one answer to that. Uh, the appropriate gun for a five foot tall, hundred pound female and a Six foot five inch, 350 pound male may not be the same. Not gender based, based on things like hand size, hand strength, overall overall body strength, overall body size, enough real estate to hide the gun on, for instance. So those those considerations come into play. Uh, an often overlooked thing is the holster. As we just mentioned, if you're not at home, the gun's gonna start in the holster. So the selection of the holster is almost as important as the selection of the sidearm. Uh, I find people go out and spend seven or eight hundred dollars on a quality pistol and get a fifteen dollar one size fits none sausage sack to stick it in, and uh, that's really false economy. The, the selection of the holster is critical. It's got to keep the gun on your person safely, securely. It's got to be comfortable enough for you to actually wear it because I don't care how many you got in the sock drawer; they're not going to help you on the Kmart parking lot. Got to be able to give the gun up in a heartbeat when you need it. It's got to protect the trigger guard, keep the gun from being discharged when it's in the holster. 
So properly designed holsters got to do a lot of things that are somewhat in competition with each other. Anything you do to make it more secure is going to make it less fast. Anything you do to make it more concealable may, may make it less comfortable. So it's it's a compromise as are almost everything in its line of work. Um, I couldn't care less what brand of gun you carry if it works reliably and you can hit well with it. Uh, those are the two absolutely critical things. Since the only reason we reach for it in the real world is because our life is literally at stake, then it's got to work. Baffles me that people put up with guns that malfunction periodically. I, I guarantee it's going to malfunction in flights. You're in the damn thing. It's, we're not in South Africa. This is the U.S. You can get another one. So either get it fixed or get another one. Um, don't care what color the bullets in it are until you learn how to put them where you need them to be. Uh, good hit with a marginal bullet's a lot better than a marginal hit with a good bullet. So learn, learn to place them correctly. And quit obsessing over the hardware crap. Get a gun that works that you can hit with, carry it religiously, and learn to hit with it, and you'll be way ahead of the game. Uh, one last question on hardware from me. Uh, and it, I thought of it because I was listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking about um, the proliferation, I guess, the, the common now, uh, what, what's common use of red dot sites as opposed to iron sites. And the comment that caught my ear was that we are in this sort of transitional period where folks in our generation grew up <clears throat> learning to drive a car with a manual transmission. And as our kids got older, we'd want them to learn how to drive a car with a manual transmission because you never know uh, when you might need it. Of course, in 21st century now, there aren't any cars with manual transmissions. And I'm wondering, what's your view of red dot sites? And are you transitioning in any training that, that you're doing or recommending? And for new gun owners, especially maybe younger gun owners that have never really trained on either uh do you have any just thoughts on that yeah i i honestly don't care if you if you want to not put it out on if you don't want one don't put one on uh they're 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 not a panacea the problem with them is so many people particularly if they're new new to this think if i just put a dot on the gun i want to learn how to shoot if you have a crappy grip you don't understand trigger control the, the, the dot's not gonna help you anymore. It's, it's not gonna do a bit of good for you uh, if you understand those things, then you can shoot fine with irons. Dots increase uh, precision at, at distance, uh, but that's not the big issue. The big issue is 35 yards. Uh, I'm not sure there are big advantages there. Um, I, I honestly just don't care. If you want to carry a dot, carry a dot. If you don't want to carry a dot, don't carry a dot. One thing you'll find if you go take a couple of dot-specific handgun courses is it's just a pistol course. You, you've got to present the gun correctly. You've got to hold the gun correctly. You've got to work the trigger correctly. Whether you're using irons or a dot, they're nothing in the world but an optical reference point to allow you to align the barrel with the target. They, they don't do the shooting for you. So uh, it's, it's just a mistake to think if I if I buy a red dot, I'll be a good shot. No, you'll be a guy that owns a red dot. Uh, so of all the things we've talked about, um, <clears throat> it doesn't boil down to whether there's a dot or not. It's the decision-making that leads you up to that point of pulling the trigger is far more important in the big picture than whether or not you have a dot or not. Whether you got a front sight or a dot, by the time mm -hmm. that's on the target, all kinds of other things have happened that, that you should have been thinking more about. But either way, you need the training, no matter what. 
yeah, yeah. The dot, the, the dot's not going to make a poor shot a good shot. It's just mm-hmm. that doesn't work. There aren't any magic beans in this business. Uh, <laughs> and since you mentioned the decision making, Don, maybe that's a great place to to bring this around. You know, one of the goals of our podcast is we look at real life self defense cases, look at through all the nuances that we know about them, often through the lens of the courtroom that hashed out all these details and the the real life scenarios that people find themselves in are often very dis different than the thing that they imagined they'd face when they purchased their firearm and decided to be a concealed carrier in the first place and you mentioned tom in your book that uh, a lot of the folks that you've trained they walk around with a firearm but they may not uh have visualized what the scenario is or what types of scenarios they might find themselves in. And that's, that's the mental work. That's the software work. What, what do you, for a final thought here, what recommendations do you have for our listeners about how to develop a practice of visualization and, and develop the right mental state for being a concealed carrier? It's really pretty simple. Um, police officers are involved in, really ambiguous situations a lot of the time where they're arriving on the scene with the action already unfolding there may be multiple people with weapons that there is no possible way for the police officer to look at people in plain civilian clothing with weapons and say well that one's a good guy that one's a bad guy so they they often have to make judgments that turn out to be quite wrong based on all of that but the reality is real self-defense shootings involving private citizens are almost always just absolutely crystal clear, not ambiguous at all. If I'm walking across the parking lot, some guy steps out from between two vans and points a gun at me and my wife, I might conclude somebody needs to be shot, but it won't take me long to figure out it ain't me and it ain't her. It must be him. Mm. (laughs) And that is the vast majority of private citizen shootings. What they need to do is get in their mind an idea of what violent crime actually looks like. So when they see it unfolding, instead of, I can't believe this is happening, well, I knew this was going to happen sooner or later. Completely different mindset. You know, it depends on who you believe. But uh, at, at one time, the Justice Department came out with a study that said if you were 12 years or older in 1986, you had a one in four chance of being involved in a violent crime in your lifetime. One in four, not, not a couple million, in four. Uh, in Memphis, uh, you know, people ask me sometimes, why do we have to be students involved in, in gunplay there? I, I looked at the violent crime stats for 2018. In Chicago, there was a violent crime for every 99.4 inhabitants that year. So you had about a one in a hundred chance of being involved in a violent crime in that one year in Chicago. In Los Angeles in that year, there was there were 133.8 people for every violent crime or one violent crime for every 133 people. In Memphis in that year, there was a violent crime for every 51 people. So the violent crime rate is two and a half times that of Chicago. Okay. So instead of, I can't believe this is happening to me, no matter which of those cities or any other city you're in, instead of, I can't believe this is happening to me, what should your response be? Should be, well, I knew this was going to happen sooner or later. That's a completely different mindset then you're not stuck in that denial loop. You're able to actually move and do something about it. So the first thing I suggest people do is internalize the fact that violent crime is a lot worse than the media and the government would like you to believe. 
a lot more prevalent and that you're not immune and you could take as many precautions live as as carefully as you like and still be faced with this so the first thing is, is mental acceptance that, yeah this can actually happen to me and i'll have to deal with it second thing is to understand that it is simply not physically possible for somebody else to come fix it it's, it's not possible the way the system works so you have to deal with it yourself okay we used to tell people get a big city newspaper whether you live in a big city or not have one delivered to your house and just read it every morning because the every big city newspaper the first section is typically international news but the second section is usually local news and local news typically consists of nothing more than the litany of yesterday's atrocities and a bunch of crime mm. and just pick out two when you as you're eating your breakfast drinking your coffee pick out two crime stories and read them and look at them from a critical eye what what, what was this person doing that made them vulnerable what why did the bad guy how did the bad guy capitalize on this what could the victim have done to get out of this and what you're doing is you're getting practice making tactical decisions. I kind of gave up on telling people to read the newspaper because they kind of look at me blankly and say, what the hell is a newspaper? But uh, everybody's got the internet now and they're sitting there staring at their phone while they're eating their breakfast. So um, look at a few of the newspapers. One of the things, one of the advantages of that actually is that when you had to read the newspaper, you had to visualize the action that you were reading about. But now when you see videotapes of, of attacks, and I get them in my newsfeed every day, several of them a day, uh, criminal interactions, call on surveillance. You know, if you're not in your home, you're probably on a surveillance camera. If you're on the Walmart parking lot, you got multiple cameras looking at you. If you're on the service station parking lot, you got multiple cameras. If you're inside the grocery store, multiple cameras. These are the kind of places where attacks occur. So look at some of these videos. Just look at a couple a day, two a day. And... Think about all right now if that happened to me what would i do about it and, and as i said you're you're getting practice every day making tactical decisions then rather than have to go take a specific class on how to make tactical decisions just every day run through a couple of those scenarios before long you'll start figuring out that violent interpersonal crime what we call street crime it's only got a fairly small number of variations you know white collar crime economic crime has endless variations but there's only so many ways a guy can rob you. There's only so many ways a guy can carjack you. Only so many ways a guy can kidnap you and rape you. So if you look at those episodes a couple of days over a period of time, you're conditioning your brain to accept the possibility of violence and know what it looks like and know that you need to respond to do something about it. So to me, that's probably the simplest and easiest way to do that. Um, you don't want a lot of personal experience in this field. Uh, you know, the, the test comes first and the lesson comes afterwards. <laughs> what you want to do is, is profit from other people's experiences. And, and now I, there's not a day goes by. I don't get several of those in my newsfeed every day now. So just, just look at them. Look at them with a critical eye. Don't just say to yourself, oh, that's horrible. I don't want to think about that. Think about it. Somebody had to deal with that. Uh, there's no reason to think you won't have to deal with that. So think about how will I deal with that when it happens. Not I can't believe this is happening to me, but my day at that completely different mindset. All right, everybody, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Next time you hear from us, you're going to be treated to an interview with the illustrious Craig Douglas. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care.
You're a daisy if you do.